Welcome and thank you for downloading the Green Majority podcast. A quick message from one of our members. My name is Paul and I support the Green Majority because of their in-depth coverage that goes beyond the mainstream headlines. And if you also enjoy the Green Majority show, please consider supporting us. You can do that at patreon.com slash greenmajority or go to greenmajority.ca and follow the button that says how you can help. Welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of stuff today, but a lot of, uh, a lot of local, very interesting uh, issues, uh, things, you know, local like uh, TPP, like C51, like pipelines, <laughs> very interesting stuff. We're also taking a little bit of a different tact at it today, which is that we're going to be starting with a little bit of news. We do have two guests coming in, uh, so I'll let you know what that's going to be, and then we're actually going to get right started into the headlines here at the top of the show here uh, as well. So coming up uh, in a little bit later in the show, we have someone who's going to be coming in and doing a uh, special report on Line 9. We also, after that, will have uh, someone come in and talk a little bit about the developments of C-51. So the uh, the post-Harper C-51 impacts, what's going on with that? We haven't talked about it in a while, and, and I think it, for a lot of people, honestly, that's dropped off the radar. So it's good to have a little bit of a check-in uh, on that. But before we get any further, as I said, we are going to be changing things up a little bit this week and starting with news. So I welcome uh, joining me here is Emma Ma, joining me in the studio, who is going to be helping me go through some of this week's news. So take it away, Emma. Yes. Yeah, so before we go low, we're going to start with global, and it's always nice to start with a good news story. So that's what we're going to start with. And then we're going to continue on to a story that should have been good news, but has taken a turn for the worse. So the first story we want to talk about is that Morocco has activated the world's largest solar power plant in the Sahara Desert, and it's located near the city of Warzazat. I just love saying Warzazat. I've actually been there. Um, and the plant itself is called Nor Warzazat um, Power Complex, and it apparently is capable of powering over more over 1 million homes or will be by by 2018 and it will also reduce carbon emissions by 760,000 tons per year now that is really impressive but one of the things that i just want to highlight which is perhaps the most impressive feature of this new plant is that it uses concentrating solar power or csp which enables energy to be stored and used for nights and cloudy days so one of the one of the things that uh, detractors of, of renewable energy say, it's hard to believe they're out there, but they are, um, is they, they point to a weakness in energy, energy storage. And this is something that um, hasn't progressed as fast as the rest of the tech. So this plant is particularly exciting because it does have this ability for storage and it can actually uh, generate power three hours a night. That's pretty impressive. 
And it's it also, I mean, that's one of the, just to highlight, I mean, that sort of sounds like a neat feature. Like we were talking about uh, a new car that came out. It'd be like, ooh, this one has electric windows. No, no, no. This is the, uh, the entire storage issue is basically one of the most important things that uh, A, in a, in a not realistic sense, is the thing that people who don't have any idea what they're talking about like to use to attack renewable energy. But it, there is a grain of truth in that, in that it is, it is when you're actually planning a system, uh, the idea that, you know, wind, uh, wind isn't always blowing and sun isn't always yeah. shining is not as legitimate a concern as the opponents would make it out to be, but it is a legitimate concern. And this uh, addresses that directly. So it's, it's one of many ways of solving that problem, but it's, it's, it's a really cool plant. Yeah, so it just shows us that, um, particularly in a, a lower-income country like Morocco, um, that if the right investments are made, progress is absolutely possible. So when we talk about you know high-income countries contributing a hundred billion a year for mitigation and adaptation measures, which is what they committed to at COP twenty-one in Paris, I mean this is the kind of investment that really will benefit. Um, communities in lower income countries, this is what has been the kind of thing that has been called for and should be invested in, in my view. And uh, unfortunately, there's been some roadblocks, I understand. Yeah, so our next story is a less positive one, unfortunately, and it's about the WTO, the World Trade Organization, uh, dispute panel ruling against several of India's provision in its national solar mission, um, saying that they are inconsistent, quote unquote, with international trade norms. Now, this ruling was actually prompted by the U.S., but I want to take just a minute to sort of set up the story so that people really understand the magnitude and the impact of, of this kind of ruling. So it's estimated that about $300 million Indians don't have access to electricity. And the country's solar plan, which was launched in 2010, aims to change that and also simultaneously um, combat poverty by creating jobs locally. God forbid that a national government should want to meet those two aims with a a program or a policy. So basically what the key aim is, is that um, the Indian government wants to install 100 gigawatts of solar capacity by 2022. And it requires that a certain percentage of the cells and panels be manufactured locally. What the U.S. government has done is argued that these domestic content requirements have led to a 90% decrease in its solar exports to India since 2011. So they weren't happy about this. And uh, they raised a fuss. They lodged a WTO complaint. And so they are reacting quite positively to this ruling. And I just want to read a, a quote um, by by one of their industry leaders, uh, Dan Witten, who's the vice president of communications for Solar Energy Industries Association in the U.S. So the quote is, this decision helps us bring clean energy to the people of India as that nation's demand for ele- electricity grows rapidly. So I find this really, really, um, let me say, offensive that the U.S., will portray its mission to actually bring electricity to the people of India, but are at the same at the same time impeding their government's ability for the Indian people to bring electricity to Indians. What do yeah. you think of that, Darren? Well, it's, it's I mean, you know, as Stefan gave me uh, a little bit of uh, issue a few weeks ago for, for uh, what's that fallacy? I always forget the one where you go immediately to Nazis. 
Uh, with a reference, like someone will know. Someone will know what there. There's a there's a word for when you immediately make a comparison right, to Nazis. Right. And okay. St- anyway, so Stefan was giving me trouble for doing that a week ago. Uh, but I mean, th- like this is like banana republic stuff. This is using you know mm-hmm. an imperialist imperialist attitude and the weight that comes with being one of the world's most influential nation right. uh, to protect your own internal corporations. And I and I don't think it is inconsistent. And that's because it might it might seem I think on the face of it to be inconsistent to say, well, you're saying you're wanting this thing and you're and, but you're doing that, but it but it isn't. Uh, because the 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 way in which these sports sort of programs are going to go forward without any roadblock is when corporations agree, and uh, corporations are only going to agree not when it benefits this country or that country because they're multinational con- companies and they have no allegiance to any country. Is when they can profit off it, and if and if and if they can't, and it's actually just going to help people, they'll stop it, and they'll stop it not because they're evil, they'll stop it because that's. A lost opportunity for profit for them in the same way mm-hmm. that they want to be able to to use the investor state uh, uh, trade resolution, which we'll get into in a second as well, uh, to sue against future profit. So this is the exact same thing. Hey, I could have made a buck yeah. off that. So I'm going to stop you from doing it because I can because then I can make a buck off it. It's entirely consistent and it's entirely predictable. Yeah, as I'd, sad and frustrating and as it is. And I would be remiss not to point out that the U.S. does support some degree of domestic sub- subsidies for local renewables in nearly half of all states. So the article points out that India could likely file a WTO complaint should they decide to do that. But is this really where we want the energy spent? Governments suing one another for actually making good policy and good investments in something that's going to help um, not only local communities, um, but us as a global community. And this is just very sad because um, the article points out also that this comes at a time where rampant coal use and waste burning in India has actually now contributed to air quality in Delhi that is worse than Beijing. So, mm-hmm. you know, here we here we're witnessing something that can really contribute to turning that kind of situation around for the people of India. Um, and the U.S. comes in. And of course, uh, uses everything uh, at its disposal in, in support of its own industries to to basically crush this initiative. Yeah, and uh, and uh, thanks for that, Emmy. And and one of the other things I want to do again, as I said, we're we're starting with the news at the beginning of the show here as well. And and uh, first of all, I want to apologize. We didn't have audio in our headphones when I started, and, and that was a really awkward start because it, it, I can't explain how disconcerting it is to not be able to hear yourself. So I apologize for that <laughs> incredibly awkward opening. So now that we've got that out of the way as well, uh, a whole bunch of the other uh, news items here, which I think tie into with themes. That every week, what we do is we'll go through and, and I queue a bunch of news items throughout the week, and uh, they'll range uh, anywhere between you know five and. 25 linked articles that my extremely patient uh, fellow volunteers will read through mostly and help us do the news. And, and it's a lot of work, but we do we do put this list together. And so th- there is a list far beyond what we actually read on the show. And, and this is uh, this is put on the website as well. So what I wanted to just to sort of skim through before I get to my last uh, news item here that we wanted to uh, uh, cover before we move into the next section as well uh, was just to, was just to run through some of that because that's kind of just, you know, the the meta view, the the 10,000 feet view of kind of what's going on. So just I mean, some of the other headlines that really jumped out at me. And again, there will be a full full list of this on the website as well uh and you can actually vote and send us stuff there on the website while we're at it greenjourney.ca um but uh we have uh, for instance ottawa is uh, see, uh, seeking to set out a national minimum carbon pricing of course we're talking about a little bit of that we'll be coming back to that a little bit more as well uh an interesting other uh, piece that came out uh, a lot of this this week was thanks to the national observers so they're doing a great job over there and this was uh mike d'souza uh was talking about how enbridge wants to break its oil sands addiction and there's a key quote here which i actually tweeted out a little uh, earlier but let me see if i can find it directly uh rapidly here uh was that uh, yeah here we go um uh i i won't bother searching for his name uh but it's a little farther up 
open the article just for the sake of time, but the quote is, and this is a spokesperson for Enbridge, uh, quote, we think this is a very good environment in Alberta to invest in renewables. And uh, so, A, that was just a na-na-na-na-na-na at all the trolls out there, for starters, but <laughs> as far as seeing the writing on the wall. Uh, but the, it's, it's, it's also this sort of double thing we were talking about with the, that I mentioned sort of with the first story, which was that you say, well, oh, look, and, you know, uh, Suncor does have some solar plants, and Enbridge is saying it, you know, that they, they're now finally admitting that they, they want to break their oil sands addiction. It's like, well, I, I got news for you. They've known for 30 years. We now have evidence that Exxon did. But come on, people. I mean, this is – and the reason I want to want to do this is not just to, you know, wave my fist at, at Enbridge or any of the other oil companies this week because good, I'm glad. I'm happy that they're admitting that it's in, in absolutely inevitable that the, uh, you know, oil model and specifically at least for now the oil sands model is is not going to be when we run out of oil. Um, but which is that the only reason we're in this position is because so many people have fought to make this an issue. And the big, bad, giant corporations have been forced into a corner and are forcing to change the policies. Of course, they're framing it as if it's their decision and has nothing to do with with activists. But this is happened when we this is what happens when we have real conversations about things. And don't get me wrong. It is nowhere near far enough. And we need to do much, 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 much more. But I want to I want to take another opportunity to uh, to identify a win. There's been a, an absolute upsurge of public pressure on these issues. And. We can win, and and I want to tie that into my uh, to my last story. And again, there's m- many, many more you can go through here. I may me th- read through some of them later, but I'll use that as my segue into the last story, which was uh, something that was posted by the Dogwood Initiative uh, about a uh, f- uh, the first FIPA case, which is a trade deal between um, Canada and China, and. Uh, you know, one of the other things that the the article doesn't really point out that I thought was interesting is that uh, I, I don't actually know enough about China. I'll just be totally honest with you about that. But I don't know if it's most or all of these international corporations are called Chinese companies, but that really just means Chinese government. Uh, I don't know the, the specifics about that, but but there's 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 a very big difference between a Chinese company and an American company when it comes to because of how China uh, works and their corporate their companies work. Uh, but it's basically the Chinese government and they're. They're pointing out a case where there's contesting now because uh, they want to make sure that uh, a lot of the pipelines, even some of the pipelines that the liberal government has already said that they don't want to go ahead with, uh, could potentially pull out this investor state uh, trade resolution uh, uh Forgetting the acronym now off the top of my head, um, but using this as sort of these these uh, these uh, pieces that are in the trade deals to, be, to basically be able to sue against future profits. Uh, and what's really interesting is that they didn't. They went through national court. And what I think the argument that's being made here, and again, you can read it on the website if you like, but the article that's made being made here by Will Horder, who's uh, writing for Dogwood, is uh, is that. They didn't do it. The reason they chose not to take this under the trade court and they went with the the inside sort of a, a national court inside Canada here is that they know that that will upset people if they actually get to sue against future profits when we're about to sign the agreement that makes this even stronger. They know that that will upset people and they know that that will make it harder to get the deal passed. And that on its own should make you suspicious. That they have this tool and they're not using it because they want to get the tool strengthened soon should really uh, should really alert you and set off some warning bells. I don't know what do you what do you think about that, Emmy? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's uh, very tactical if that is in, <laughs> if that is in fact uh, the the tactic that they're pursuing. Um, I think that it it also it also just highlights the array of tools that we're creating. Um, 
that will be at the disposal of foreign corporations to uh, litigate against our government, and that goes this, that that holds true for the other governments that have been parties to these agreement agreements, and that really we're looking at setting up uh, a direct. Um, chilling effect on positive climate action and positive climate policy, like, for example, the one that the Indian government was trying to enact in the last last article that we spoke about. Yeah, and and what are the consequences of this? What are the what are the consequences when we just sort of let you know corporations, regardless of who they are, Chinese, American, whatever? I, as I've said repeatedly, these labels are increasingly meaningless. These sort of nationalistic labels to companies are increasingly meaningless anyway. Um, but it brings us to another report, which is Canada's disaster relief costs are spiking due to extreme weather. Okay, what do we mean by that? Well, according to this report, and again, you can read this yourself on the website, uh, is that in the fiscal year uh, to, uh, 2012 2013, uh, there was 280 million dollars transferred to the provinces. Uh, by the next round, 2013 to 2014, this had increased to $1.02 billion. Guess what it was 2014 to 2015? Well, it was 350, uh, $305 million. Uh, so we're oscillating around again a, a little bit of a dip down there that was, uh, you know, it's not it's not going to be a steady climb because the the, the climate systems that are impacting it. But the overall long-term uh trend and what they're predicting is, you know, uh, upwards closer to a a billion dollars again, is the actual costs. And so the the reason I bring this in is, A, this is one of the consequences of, you know, the the larger picture of not dealing with things like climate change and whatnot. But the other angle to bring it back to the the reason why I'm tacking this on to the sort of international trade deal thing was when they tell you, okay, well, don't worry, you know, uh, yeah, okay, you might lose some jobs, but overall, you're going to win. When they make these net positive arguments or when they make these net positive arguments for the oil sands same thing okay yeah 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 okay there's there's some downsides but it's net positive you don't understand um all of those calculations are being done without any of these numbers included any of them at all all they're all they're doing is saying we're going to make this much more profit and theoretically that will trickle down to you by the way we're going to leave out the fact that uh if we ever do have a spill which statistically we're guaranteed to uh, there's no such thing as a safe pipeline. Uh, you're going to pay for most of that. Uh, when people get sick, we have public health care. You're going to pay for most of that. When we try and do anything or try and limit the damage, guess what? They're going to sue international trade court. You're going to pay for that too. Uh, we're going to get companies who are going to lower trade regulations and do away with union laws. Well, guess what? There goes your health care. There goes your extra coverage. There goes your job security and there goes your wages. So don't let them lie to you. Don't let them lie to you. This is all nonsense. And if it wasn't nonsense, they wouldn't have to sell it to you in ads. They wouldn't have to get people to come on TV and wave their hands and call everybody stupid because that's what Donald Trump does. He yells at people and he intimidates people and he calls them stupid instead of actually presenting arguments. And that's what I would like to see from these people. If there's anyone, and, I'm, and here I'm talking to, and we'll go back to Emmy here. I'm just about <laughs> run out of steam in a second. But, uh, you know, and if, if, if anyone, if you're someone who's listening, who who thinks you know uh, tar sands is a good idea, or you know, even in saying okay, yes, you know, and I don't mean you know a climate denier. I mean someone who's saying okay, climate change is real, but we're going to make so much money off the tar sands that 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 will use that money to pay for climate change, and that's the way that we should go ahead. Or if you're somebody that says yes, okay, well there may be some pluses and minuses to international trade deals, but they're net positive, and go ahead, stop saying that, and present your actual numbers, and then I'll tell you all the numbers that you're missing because there isn't an there isn't a set of numbers out there that when you actually do full cost accounting is net positive. They don't exist. And the reason that they're doing things like we said in this other story that I came back to again, where they're not using tools they could because both China and Canada and a whole bunch of other countries or rather not the countries themselves, but the people with power 
want to are not using these trade deals right before we go ahead and ratify a stronger one is because they know that it's going to screw you over and that that's going to upset you and then that will get you to to vote in favor of your own interests shocking i know emmy and we can promise you that there will be much, much more on the show <laughs> on that particular subject. I'm kind of liking this starting on a high note. So that's why, actually we're, why we're actually going to go away from me now. I'm going to take a deep breath uh, in a minute. Did, did we wrap up comment yeah, at all on one, any of these one, news? one wrap up comment, and it's more of a heads up. It's as Darren talked about, we're going to be talking about this next week. So the prime minister is meeting with all the premiers at their first minister's meeting on climate change. This is something that the new government had been really uh, promoting as part of their election platform that they would meet within 90 days of COP21 finishing. Um, and so they've really built this up quite a bit. And now now the, the environment minister herself is saying that they don't actually expect an agreement to be finalized at, the, at this meeting, which I don't think surprises anybody. Um, the one thing to look out for, I think, coming out of the meeting is what are they going to do on carbon pricing? So um, the article from the Globe and Mail that will be on our on our website today talks about the fact that they're expected to sort of set some sort of minimum carbon price that would apply across the board at uh, $15 per ton, which is not even halfway to the starting point that they should be at probably. Mm. Um, but the idea is to quote unquote, kind of level the playing field. So some provinces already have a higher carbon price than that, in fact, but some don't have any. Um, you can maybe take a, a wild guess which ones do not. Um, and so really, the uh, what we should be looking for is how definitive is a commitment um, going to be coming out of that? And what work will have to be done to really hold uh, the, the federal government and the province's feet to the fire, so to speak, to actually make very tangible commitments for developing a, a national climate platform. So that's a heads up for next week. That meeting starts on March 3rd, and we will certainly be talking about it on the show. Yeah, all right. So just to wrap up this section before we leave, I'll just read a couple more of the, uh, the items. And we're probably going to come back to the, Well, the first one we're definitely going to come back to because Stefan's off this week. You may have noticed I didn't uh, introduce him. Uh, he's also off next week. So when in two weeks from now, uh, when Stefan's back, uh, because he really wanted to sort of take point on this, we're going to be discussing uh, uh, particularly an article. I'll link to it today if you want to read it ahead of time. But we're going to come back and spend some time on it, uh, which was from The Nation, which was uh, a, an extremely upsetting and extremely angering, I think, um, I'm trying to moderate my language here, but I'm sure you can imagine what I'd like to be saying. Um, thing that we both all know, uh, I think many people could have easily predicted, um, but doesn't sort of dull the point of it at, at all, which was a study that shows, shockingly not, that race best predicts whether you live near pollution. Right. So this, these are not, these are not eco issues. And that's why I sort of, that's why, that's not what Stefan wants to talk about, but that's why I wanted to bring up, bring it up now was this is not about protecting birds and bees. This is about, these issues are connected to the absolute power structure of com complete international corporate corruption and self-interest and throwing it all on the rest of you. So if, if you, if you're somebody, if you're not a millionaire, this is about you and you're the one under attack. And we're going to talk about that more, and and uh, and uh, I'm going to try and uh, take a little bit of a breather here. So why don't we go ahead and take a break? Brenna Owen is also in the studio. Brenna is going to be introducing our next guest, which is uh, David Gray Donald. David uh, is a uh, author uh, of many many uh, websites, including Vice and Rabble, and he recently wrote a piece on Line Nine. And Brenna is going to come back right after the break and uh, help David walk us through uh, what is going on with Line Nine. What's the latest? We'll be dealing with that right after the break. You're listening to 
the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And we're going to go now to Edward. Edward, we missed you, buddy. We haven't heard you in a few weeks. How's it going? And then please tell us what we're going to listen to. Well, it's going pretty good. Uh, getting into the tough season for university. Uh, a lot of lot of midterms, a lot of problem sets. You, you, sound, well, you sound tired, buddy. Yeah, I got, I got three <laughs> hours of sleep last night. So. And he's still here. Yep. Oh, man, you're the best. Yep. All right. Um, so we got uh, April Wine. April Wine. Rock and roll is a vicious game. All right, we're back. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. You could be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country or into the United States as well. Or you could be listening on the podcast, which if you are, we have a, uh, a special extended bonus show for you as well. Uh, Sabina is going to be joining us at the end of the show. Uh, and she's going to help us talk about a little bit more about the TPP, but specifically with regards to seafood, uh, seafood exports uh, and the impacts on the uh, f- uh, federal fishing. Fisheries and Oceans Minister. Fisheries and Oceans. Fisheries and Oceans. This is a tongue twister. Although you can tell how much uh, better it is or easier it is for me to start when I can actually hear my own voice. The contrast is, is incredible. I don't, know, I don't know how to explain it to folks that aren't used to talking into a microphone, but it's really weird. Anyway, we're good now. Uh, that's what we're going to be doing later in the show. But for now, I will throw it over to Brenna Owen, who's going to uh, introduce our guest. Thanks, Darren. So, David Gray Donald, welcome to The Green Majority. Great to be here. Uh, David is a freelance journalist covering climate issues in Canada, particularly pipelines. He's written for Vice, Media Co-op, Rabble, and Briar Patch Magazine, among others, I'm sure. Um, and we're going to speak a little bit about Enbridge's Line 9 pipeline this morning. I've got a few questions, but I actually just wanted to give you the floor for a bit of a, a recent report on, on what's going on with Line 9. Yeah, thanks. And I'll frame this sort of, we were talking before about... Uh, how pipelines are a big issue in Canada right now. Um, I'm not sure if people saw a very popular article from David Suzuki, beloved and detested throughout the nation, um, who he was sort of said, why are we still talking about pipelines? Um, let's get on with it. Let's get on with the energy transition. But we're still talking about pipelines. So I am going to talk uh, about Enbridge's Line 9 um, because it still is a big issue and other pipelines are still a big issue in Canada. Um, Line 9 is a 40-year-old pipeline that runs from um, Sarnia and to Montreal, so about 800 kilometers, um, passes by about 8 million people. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the land that it's on. Um, when it was made 40 years ago, I think we should keep in mind that um, residential schools were still operating. Um, Indigenous consent was not nearly as much of a a topic in mainstream, and by mainstream I mean white Canada. Um, At the time, there were major treaty violations, um, people were being ripped from their families, um, and the land had this pipeline put through it. There's about, there's more than a dozen Indigenous nations along the line, um, and Bridges Line 9. So it started uh, as a, a way to move oil from west to east, um, so there were crude oils being made in the West and moving East. And then changes in the international markets made it so that um, sort of overseas oil, uh, which was cheaper, was being brought from Montreal into the interior of the continent. Um, and then in 2012, markets shifted again and the tar sands were expanding. So the idea was put forward by Enbridge. Uh, they said, let's reverse it again to put diluted bitumen, so tar sands oil, through. And... Um, that was 2012. There was a lot of citizen or sort of um, opposition from people. And then in uh, December 3rd, 
2015, so two or three months ago, it started operating. Um, so oil started moving. This is tar sands oil and um, Bakken, which is sort of lighter oil from Saskatchewan and the Dakotas, moving through the pipeline. Four days later, and I'm, I'm going to give us a few scenes along the pipeline. Four days later, so December 7th, 2015, so three months ago, um, three uh, men in right at the Ontario-Quebec border, just east of Montreal, in a town, Quebec town called Saint-Justine-de-Newton, uh, broke into um, a valve site and shut down the pipeline. Now, a valve site is basically just an area of fence um, in a field, and inside the fence that has a barbed wire sort of top thing um, is a, a wheel, and the wheel manually shuts down the pipeline. Um, that's to both prevent loss of oil if there's a, a break or a leak or a, a rupture and also protect the environment. But really, it's, you know, they make it so they don't lose a whole bunch of oil when there's a spill so they can manually shut things down. Um, so these people went in uh, early in the morning. They called Enbridge before shutting down the pipeline to say they were going to do it. So Jean Léger in French, um, who's been a very active uh, opponent of the pipeline. He called Enbridge to tell them what they were going to do. Then he did it. The ground sort of shook um, as they were closing the pipeline, according to their accounts. I've talked with two of them. Um, and then they didn't quite shut it all the way. Um, then the former mayor of the town, Patricia Domingos, showed up, and she acted as the spokesperson for the rest of the day, um, called Enbridge and couldn't talk to anyone in French. And then Enbridge called her back uh, in French, and they were saying that they didn't see anything on their um, on their system. Like there was nothing showing up that said that there was a any sort of malfunction or, or closure in the line. Um, so the police had showed up at this point, and the protesters had themselves locked onto the uh, valve with U locks around their necks. So what they did actually is they unlocked. Um, in front of the police, the police were like in their cars, you know, 100 meters away or so, unlocked, shut down the valve all the way, and then locked back on, um, which is a bit gutsy. Um, and then it's actually very hard to tell. Um, so whether Enbridge shut the pipeline down or whether that shut the pipeline down. Enbridge claims that they shut it down as a um, safety precaution. The protesters claim they shut it down. Um, I was writing for Vice at the time, and Enbridge doesn't talk to Vice. Um, which is, uh, anyway, um, so then over the course of the day, more police showed up, more, um, supporters showed up and sort of set up some tents by nightfall. The protesters had been removed. Um, the firefighters had cut the wheel that was, that they were locked to. And then the, one of the protesters went to court or went to the police station with the U-lock still around his neck and the police station wouldn't like press charges on him at that point when he still had the U-lock around his neck. Um, he then, this protester going by the name Will then wrote an account called the cat is out of the bag. It's easier than anyone thought to shut down a pipeline. Um, two weeks later at the other end um, very close to Sarnia and Amjanong First Nation and what's known as the Chemical Valley, where there's a, a, over 60 large industrial facilities. Three women, including Vanessa Gray from Amjanong First Nation, um, basically did the same action. They broke into one of these fenced-off sites um, and turned the wheel. Um, it was They had people filming it. 
and then they were arrested this time much more quickly than the previous time. Um, and in both cases, uh, the protesters are being charged. Uh, in that case in particular, the charge is, is actually very severe. It's uh, mischief endangering life. The maximum sentence with that is uh, life in prison. Um, they did call ahead beforehand um, to let Enbridge know what they were doing. There is a, a slight possibility that when you do shut a valve, the pressure buildup in the line, you can imagine there's a lot of diluted um, bitumen, um, which is kind of like a hot, um, crunchy peanut butter moving through this pipeline, and then it hits um, a solid wall. Um, you could imagine that there could be a risk that something something breaks um, and oil goes somewhere, which is why they, they called ahead of time to, to let Enbridge know what they were doing as a safety precaution. Their intent was not, from from talking with Vanessa, not to hurt anyone, but to shut down this pipeline that um, does not have consent to operate on their, their land. Um, Amjanong had its... Uh, over a course of about 100 years, 1850 to 1950, had its... Um, territory, exclusive territory reduced by about two-thirds through um, illegal land grabs and treaty violations. Um, a bit further over, and I'll wrap up in a second, um, a bit further east is Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, and that is a, there's a number of First Nations that have issue with Line 9. Chippewa of the Thames First Nation is the only one that is um, pursuing legal action through Canadian courts. Um, they went to the Federal Court of Appeal, and that decision came out in October, and they claimed that the National Energy Board in Enbridge did not um, get their consent, that it's, um, there's a whole legal battle there that you can check out. Um, they lost that case in a decision of two to one. Two judges sided against them, one judge sided with them. Um, that was in October, and they are now pursuing their case at the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, I, I should remind you, the pipeline is currently running, um, the First Nation still claims they were not consulted. Um, the Supreme Court challenge uh, is shaping up to be very interesting. The Miangan Henry um, of Chippewa of the Thames First Nation has indicated that the cost of this case is going to be somewhere around a half million dollars. Um, not small change. There are some um, funding campaigns to, to help with this cost. But taking these corporations um, and the government to, to, to court is very costly. This case is seen as one of the only ways to, to sort of fight back against Line 9. There are also safety concerns that various municipalities have. They haven't been given emergency um, the emergency procedures on what to do if there's a problem with, with Line 9 with this new material. Um, diluted bitumen is a different material than the crudes that were coming in before. Um, it sinks in water, so there's just a different um, emergency response that they have not been given. Um, but it, it's sort of this case where the pipeline's running, um, a lot of people have sort of given up. Some people are really fighting hard to, to keep going on Line 9, and a lot of people are sort of shifting their gaze towards Energy East, um, which is a pipeline three times larger. Um, so it's it's kind of this uh, gray area right now, I'll say, about Line 9 and, and where to – what how do you stop it? Um, do, we, do people give up? Do they focus on Energy East? Do they keep fighting? Um, and so that's that's about the the update on line nine, and I'm, I'm interested to yeah. I have a couple of questions. Yeah. Thank you so much, David, because I think my sense is that perhaps um, not every and there has been substantial um, actions and voices coming out against the pipeline. But what is your sense of 
how many people actually realize how close they live. Like I'm mm. from my parents live in Port Hope, Ontario, right. which is like a few kilometers kind of the, the pipeline runs a few kilometers north of, of that community, just like countless other communities along the 401 and in the GTA. So and that's just in my tiny little like world of where my family lives. So what do you think? It, oh, no, I know. And I just want to jump in another yeah. example. I took a picture on our Instagram uh, a few weeks ago where there's a picture of the, the walk down from street level at Finch Station. Mm. Uh, and so it says subway and there's a big TTC sign and you see a giant condo building in the background. And then literally like within less than an arm's length of this TTC sign where this it's it's a it's a subway station in a major city it says danger beware Enbridge pipeline right right like i don't yeah. know what else to say so about what it. Sorry, is I just your sense of of people actually being aware of how close this pipeline is and for example sense of the like precedent of Enbridge so like i think it was line 6b in michigan causing mm-hmm. a billion dollar spill so yeah. i think there are a number of people that know about it um it's it's not Something that mainstream media has really pushed as uh, uh, emphasizing the dangers, although both in Montreal and Toronto, there were similar concerns to what is ha- uh, you're raising here that did go to the sort of city council. And um, Toronto was very concerned about uh, the danger posed to waterways. And so they asked the National Energy Board, they sort of pushed back against the National Energy Board, which is seen as sort of Harper's cronies, oil cronies. Um, and they sort of said, uh, you need to put emergency valves on both sides of waterways because um, this is too dangerous uh, for, our, for our people. Um, Enbridge did some of that, not all. Um, they sort of said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it, and then let the media um, buzz die down and then just p- push ahead. Uh, I think bo- the cities have played a role also in de-escalating the people. So Stop Line 9 was a big campaign in Toronto, and it did create a fair bit of buzz. Um, I think, yeah, the governments and the National Energy Board and Enbridge have done a fairly good job at, at getting people to, through slowly just saying, yeah, we'll do it to, to get people to um, sort of forget about it. My other question would be, did a, something similar happen um, in Sarnia when Enbridge said, actually, it was us who shut down the pipeline? Because this mm-hmm. is an interesting little piece, I think, is... So Will comes out and says it's actually much easier than you think to shut down a pipeline, which seems to be like it could be precedent setting. Mm -hmm. And we'll see more people doing this. But then Enbridge says, no, it was actually us. Yeah, I I don't have a great answer for this, actually. So I should mention there were two anonymous shutdowns in January, um, both in in sort of southwestern Ontario, you could say, um, which are more controversial. and Enbridge claimed that, uh, at least in one of those cases, that it shut the pipeline down, um, not the protesters. It's it's really hard to tell. I think, honestly, Enbridge is the only one that knows. Um, and they, they say what they say to the media. And, um, yeah. The other thing I think we're not really talking about, and so you mentioned this right away, was even someone like David Suzuki saying... Um, we we have to move on with with our mm-hmm. transition, our just transition to to a re- renewable energy economy. Mm-hmm. Doesn't like I worry that that then puts a huge onus on Indigenous communities and First Nations who are most directly affected to continue taking action while the rest of us kind of just focus on how to like build wind farms and get renewable mm-hmm. subsidies mm-hmm. for our homes. So I was you know we're not really talking about treaties. Yeah, I think you're right. We should be talking about treaties. Um, we're all treaty people. 
by being able to be on this land, um, we are uh, the beneficiaries of one hat, like one side of the treaties that were made that are the founding of this nation. Um, and yeah, I think the work has disproportionately, as you're saying, fallen on indigenous peoples. Um, and settlers have a, a big role to play, and we need to really figure out our, our role in, in solidarity. Um, we are in this together. I think Indigenous people want to work together, at least um, talking with Vanessa Gray, who, who did this action in Sarnia, Amjanong. Um, yeah, I think there's you're, you're, you're right on. And Mayor Darren, did you guys want to jump in with questions? Uh, yeah, no, I think uh, I think I'm I'm good for this section. I, I have a whole bunch I could say, but we're, <laughs> we're getting too close to the uh, to the break for what I have to say. So, M.A. Yeah, I just wanted to add one thing where we're really seeing like the the local action intersecting with the international trade law. So we've just spoken in this section a mm-hmm. lot about um, indigenous rights. And I just want to, to loop back to the article, the Dogwood article that Darren mentioned earlier about this Chinese mining corporation, which is taking the BC government uh, to court for ceding land to a First Nation. So, you know, we are we are going to see um, basically the collision of international trade law, um, domestic corporate action, and First Nations rights all on this collision course. It's already being, it's already happening. So I think we just need to really be mindful and step back and see the whole picture in terms of how, um, you know, you know, potential victories we've actually, well, actual victories we've seen in the courts in favor of First Nations. Um, need to be taken in the context of that there are these very negative tracks uh, happening um, when you look at the big picture and that we always have to be mindful of how we can support our, our First Nations colleagues in their struggle. Yeah, I would venture to say that um, probably one of the best ways, um, you know, David had mentioned people don't really know what to do about Line 9. We're maybe focusing our attention on Energy East now is to donate or or at least learn more about the Chippewa, the Thames uh, court case. Yeah. All right. And of course, David's going to supply us with uh, links to uh, any uh, information. So whatever. So David, if you want to send me Absolutely, links to places yeah. people can support. And, and of course, we'll be happy to, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll be happy to, to post your article with Vice when that's, uh, when that's ready as well. It's a forthcoming with Briar Patch. Forthcoming with Briar Patch. Um, Absolutely. Fiercely independent out of Saskatchewan. <laughs> Love it. Great magazine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gen- I'm generally supportive, I'll, I'll risk saying, uh, of pretty much everything you've sent me so far, David. So uh, search really? for David's name. I think you have a very a very loose uh, endorsement for me just generally. <laughs> on every- and, on, and on anything you've written, it's all been very good. So, uh, so look up uh, David Gray Donald. So let's take our break there. We're going to be back in just a minute with uh, Matt Curry from StopC51TO.org, who's going to talk a little bit about where we are with C51 here in Canada as well. But uh, before we do that, Edward, what are we going to listen to for our, our final music break? All right. Uh, it's very warm in here. You guys have a very soothing voice. Um, <laughs> so, it's not making your, your sleepiness any better. I know. It? It's not. Um, so I'm going to play a little, little more upbeat. Um, we got uh, Brian Wilson by the Bare Naked Ladies. All right. And we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM one of our wonderful radio partners across the country, or on rabble.ca as well, where our show is now also being hosted. You can uh, check that out there, along with a, a bunch of other wonderful content. Occasionally, some of da- uh, David Gray Donald's work as well uh, could be found there. And of course, you can find the full show notes, including the bonus show that will be hosted by Sabina today, where we'll be talking a little bit more about the TPP. And uh, and I have a few uh, other uh, pistols to fire off as well uh, that we'll save for that as well. But I'll tip you about what it's going to be about, uh, which is that a whole bunch of really interesting polling has been done that has conservatives in the Americans uh, in the U.S. and I think people everywhere who are 
uh, of the old guard, let's say, should be terrified about some opinion polls of very young folks, which I find very exciting. We'll get into that in the bonus show. But without further ado, because we're running short on time, I would like to introduce Matt Curry. And I am saying that correctly. Yes. Great. Like the spice. Uh, See, I actually have a thing where I screw up people's last names, so I I wish I'd got it wrong, but that's okay. (laughs) So Matt's here to talk to us about uh, uh, C51. He's from uh, StopC51TO.org, and uh, I'm just going to leave it right there because we're running short on time, so take it away. Sure, yeah. Okay, so um, I'm happy you had me in today because there's actually a lot of parallels between what David was talking about um, and the ongoing changes to Canada's security regime. So uh, very briefly... Uh, for folks who don't know, I'll go over what it is, and then we'll get into some some links. But uh, C-51 is a, sec- a security legislation, and it was tabled uh, by the Harper government in 2015, in January 2015, so just over a year ago, largely drafted in the wake of Michael Z. Happy Bow's rampage in Parliament Hill. Uh, the Harper government used the wave of public support for uh, increased security measures to draft what is really some f- a fairly draconian piece of legislation. So very briefly, uh, re- relevant to what David was talking about, what the law does is, well, a couple of things. Uh, first, it radically and dramatically increases uh, the definition of the word security and uh, security threat uh, in Canada. So now it used to be pretty straightforward um, as to what security threats were. It was people who want to blow up buildings, people who want to shoot people, people who wanted to take hostages, whatever. Uh, now, I'm, I'm quoting here from the law, it's any activity if it undermines the sovereignty, security, or territorial integrity of Canada uh, or the lives uh, or the security of the people of Canada. Uh, now, this can include uh, real or perceived interference with economic stability, uh, critical infrastructure, which we'll get to with regard to line nine in a second, um, or, quote, changing or unduly influencing any Canadian government by unlawful means. And again, that we'll get to word that word unlawful in a second, but it is really relevant for what we talked about earlier, which was uh, local actions uh, against big big corporations. Uh, the real concern here is that it's meant to protect Canadian interests, uh, but the idea of Canadian interests are largely in the eye of the beholder, uh, which, which is one of the problems here. Uh, now, based on this expanded definition of security threat, it also vastly expands uh, information sharing between government agencies. Uh, so it used to be there was a fairly well-regimented bureaucratic procedure for government agencies to exchange information about private citizens. So like if the RCMP wanted to look at your health records, uh, they had to go through a process and it had to be a good reason. If uh, CSIS wanted to check out your taxes, same thing. Uh, now it's largely a free-for-all with regard to what intergovernment agencies and even agencies beyond the Canadian government uh, can access as far as personal information. Uh, it also fundamentally changes the role of CSIS. Now, CSIS is the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service. It's sort of like the CIA, but not really. Uh, it was the, the significantly less cooler. Yeah, yeah, like most Canadian things, it's American <laughs> but a little lamer. Mm. Um, they were initially created in the '80s as an intelligence gathering service. Uh, the RCMP was, uh, had its intelligence privileges, I guess, revoked. Uh, CSIS was created. And this, the idea was to create a buffer between policing and intelligence. Because the RCMP had this kind of weird habit of gathering intelligence and then like breaking the law and burning people's houses down. Really? Um, so this was created. Now, what the, under the new expanded mandate, what they can do is, uh, quote, engage in steps to reduce threats, which includes, quote, disruption. Uh, and this is a fa- that doesn't really get any more specific than that. Uh, this it can include uh, violations of your charter rights or your or laws as long as there's a secret warrant ordered in a secret uh, uh, proceeding overseen by a judge. So, so just to be clear, as long yeah. as somebody somewhere 
with no no recourse or accountability has some reason that they don't have to tell you to think that you might have done something they can violate your most basic canadian rights yeah just i just wanted to be provided clear. you're on a, a list of bad folks somewhere in that, parliament that same person who's unaccountable and will never be tracked down yeah. has assured us that you're on there go on the list for a good reason okay, yeah good just yeah moving, moving forward promise so hand to god yeah. yeah uh now finally based on that it creates a new speech crime which is the promotion of terror uh, you're now liable for five years in prison if you basically advocate for terror offenses in general, uh, regardless of whether like there's any specificity or there's any real indication that that will happen. Um, and I'm not going to give you an example because I'm afraid I might run afoul of the law. Uh, but it, that's part of the problem is you're not really clear on where you're, you are, uh, if you're on what side of the law you're on. And then it gives uh, expanded powers of preventive, preventative arrest. Yeah. I, I want to I pause you yeah. on that just for a moment, just because I'm, I'm sure you're probably just going to mm-hmm. get to it there. But yeah. for, for, the, for the listeners out yeah. there that are they're not necessarily dedicated listeners and maybe yeah. you know, heard just that part, they'd be like, okay, well, if you're, if you're promoting terrorism, of course we want you arrested. So what do we mean by terrorism? Well, that's the thing. The first thing I talked about was the broadening definition of security threat, right? So when we're talking about uh, Line 9 protesters shutting down Line 9 under the new definition of security threat, that's a threat to the security of Canada and thus warrants a response from anti-terror groups right. in this think, country. Um, security of Canada is increasingly being convoluted yeah. with um, quote-unquote energy security. Right. <laughs> so the law specifically addresses threats to economic stability. And under the Harper government, and even under this new government, uh, that includes energy security uh, and the security of, of the oil sands and its ability to do its business. Hmm. Now, and that, and that's one thing that I, I, I want to sort of highlight, because that, that was something that really grabbed me as well, especially, you know, as yeah, journalists, you know, functionally here as well, is that mm-hmm. it's not even it's not even talking about an, um It's not even talking about, well, I, you know, I didn't go shut down a, a pipeline, let's say, but I promoted doing it. OK, well, and I could. Uh, the thing is, to be fair, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm me personally, and I'm not saying you speak on behalf of the mm-hmm. show here, but me personally, Darren, uh, is not a, is is very conflicted and is leaning towards being against those types of actions. Right. Just personally. And I'm not trying to advocate for that. That's my personal position. I'm not a big fan. I actively don't think that's a way to go. But I, that's, as I said, that's not, we're not here to debate mm-hmm. that. But I, even if I said that, uh, you know, even if I said that these companies shouldn't be allowed to operate, yeah. not even promoting a specific action, just saying that, I, that these company, countries, uh, these companies, private companies' interests are, are in opposition to mine as a Canadian's right. preferences, right. that still qualifies under a loose definition. Right. Beca- because it's such a vague and amorphous definition of promotion of terror, and because the definition of terror is itself so vague and, and loose, when we say we should stop them from doing what they do, and then someone goes and blows up a pipeline, uh, that link, vague and stupid as it is, can be made under this law. And that's the issue. You shouldn't be wondering if you're going to run a fellow of the law. The law should be very clear. Right. And a good example I like to use for that was people would say, well, you know, soon as they, uh, you know, you, you should make li- uh, politicians lying illegal. Sounds yeah. great. It sounds yeah. great. It sounds just as great as saying that uh, anyone that promoting terrorism should be arrested. Mm-hmm. Great. Who gets to define what's a lie? Where does that line go, right? Well, there's bending the truth. And who gets to decide where that line is all of a sudden becomes where all of the power of who's yeah. just and who's unjust is. And, and that's just too much power under one mm-hmm. person's p- personal decision. It's, it, it just can't – it's a system that's flawed inherently. Well, and, and, and herein lies the major issue is that all, all of this expansion of security culture was done without any expansion of oversight, right? So the directive is set 
it by like the Minister of Public Safety secretly, and then there's no review process to be like, hey, you way overstepped what is reasonable when you arrest all these people. It just it just happens, and so one person gets to secretly set the agenda for what is a threat to security, and that's just. It the book closes, and we all have to accept that because there's no recourse for addressing that. And I'm wondering, and Brenda, I know you want to jump in, but I, I want to get your thing on this too. Is what, what, what at what point, like, why should there ever be? And maybe you can mix this into what you were going to say. But why should there ever be a secret? Like, under what circumstances is there an argument for ever having a secret trial? I don't know. I sorry, I know you wanted to jump in, but yeah. <laughs> just was right there. So maybe Matt can loop back to that in a second. But go ahead, Brenda, first. Yeah, I mean, what I was, I was going to say is that I think something that's been lacking in the dialogue about C-51, both like pro-C-51 and and also against C-51, is that we're not talking about the like the, the racisms in right. the way that these new expansions of our security regime is, are going to be applied. So we literally were just talking about how a lot of the burden of fighting pipelines is falling on Indigenous communities. And who is going to be disproportionately targeted by this legislation? So, I mean, I, I think you've, you've hit upon a good point is that this this targets people who are actively resisting the government of Canada in, in any real means. Mm-hmm. Um, those people tend to be people of color. They, t- they tend to be uh, indigenous communities. Uh, they tend to be otherwise marginalized people. And so the something that didn't actually get talked about a lot during either the election campaign or the campaign against this bill before it became law was the fact that the people fighting, uh, fighting this law are not the people it's going to affect, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a fairly well-to-do white guy. Uh, I'm not going to get the full brunt of the government boot on my head. Um, it's other communities who are already silenced are going to experience that. And mm-hmm. that's something that doesn't get discussed enough is that this, this is a law targeted against people who are already... Well, let, and let's just tie back in. The, yeah. Again, we're not going to get into it, but I'll yeah. just at least say the name yeah. of the article that I mentioned earlier, which yeah. was that you can you can uh, basically almost perfectly draw lines yeah. around exposure to pollution and yeah. what your mm-hmm. race or socioeconomic background is. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost a perfect overlap. Yeah. Right. So there's no secret about who this is affecting mm-hmm. and who it benefits. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, it's been so hard to sort of stop this sort of thing is the majority of the people with influence, aka white people, yeah. are the majority of the people who are the least impacted. Yeah. And so it's really, really, really easy to, to distract mm-hmm. them. That doesn't mean, of course, of course, I'm not saying that all white people are evil. What I'm saying is it's really, really easy to, to not care so much if you're yeah. white. Because well, you're not the one who's de- bearing the brunt of it. Well, so, and this is the issue that we hear a lot is, well, why should I care? I'm not doing anything wrong. Right. And yeah, what do you have to fear? Yeah, you're not doing anything wrong. What do you have to hide? That's not the point. The, the point is <laughs> our constitution is now largely invalid. And what, what I like to say yeah. about that, too, is that, like, you know, now that, now that the liberals are in power, yeah. all of those conservatives that were for C51, I guarantee yeah. you, are terrified, or yeah. they should be, or they're idiots. Yeah. Uh, and, and it works the other way, too, yeah. right? Any liberal who thinks this is okay, but don't worry because it's Justin Trudeau, he wouldn't do it as mm-hmm. Justin. Okay, well, first of all, I think you're being ignorant. But second yeah. of all, what happens after Justin? Exactly. And those people get those same powers. So, unlike the Patriot, Act in the States, which this act largely mirrors, uh, C-51 is the law now forever. There's no sunset clause. There's no end of, there's no sort of emergency period. This is the law forever. And so to your point, uh, after Trudeau goes and we get, I don't know, Rob Ford, uh, <laughs> it's, it's still the law, right? 
Yeah. So I'm afraid we uh, yeah. we will actually have to leave it there, but I'll give you an opportunity yeah. to do a, to a final comment if you want yeah. to do a shout out to your event or so. Yeah. Or anything real quick, like if you'll permit, permit me a shameless plug, uh, Stop C51 Toronto is having a super cool uh, funk show on March the 12th at the Central. That's 603 Markham Street uh, in near Honest Ed's. Uh, we're gonna have a lot of cool funk music, uh, DJs. It's gonna be a super cool time. You can win prizes. There's free T-shirts. Check us out. Stop C51TO. Org. Yeah, and if you're not in Toronto, for many of our listeners as well, uh, mm-hmm. you can check out the information, and uh, and we'll have posts to a lot of this information on our website as well. So you check out greenmajority.ca slash podcast later today, and all this will be posted there as well. We'll have to stop it there. However, we are going to be in the bonus show, and Matt, you're invited to stick oh, around cool. for the bonus Thank show. You. So uh, if you're uh, listening live somewhere, go to the website, download the podcast, and hear the bonus show. We'll be back to talk about TPP with Sabina. But that's all the time we have for on this week. So thank you very much for listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT. I've been your host, Aaron Kaster, and uh, have a good green week, folks, and uh, we'll see you all real soon. Take care. Thanks. Uh, and we told you we'd have a little bit more feisty Wheaties for you this week. Again, uh, we're getting into the bonus show now. Really, really interesting poll here. We're going to talk about the TPP and then a really just amazing poll out of the U.S. that uh, got... Got me a little fired up this week, so we hope you enjoy that. Again, if you can, are willing and able, we really appreciate your support. Uh, we're collecting news and helping people analyze it and compressing it in a format that allows people who you know don't have a lot of time to really stay up to date about the most important and pressing issues. We hope that that's why you're listening, and we'd like to bring that message to a lot more people. So if you can support us, uh, we'd really appreciate it. You can go to patreon.com slash greenmajority or just go to greenmajority.ca and follow the button prompts. Thanks so much and enjoy. All right, and now we're into the uh, bonus show. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the TPP. First, just want to thank people for sticking around this long, because an hour is a long show, but we think it's action-packed, so thanks for sticking around. Sabina is now going to tell us a little bit about, I'd actually also been very interested in this story, but this was the one that Sabina wanted to talk about, so that's great. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about the TPP, and then at the end I have a brief rant, because I didn't get ranted out earlier in the show. So uh, I'm going to stay largely quiet, because I'm going to have a whole bunch of gun firing to do at the end. So take it away, Sabina. Great. Thank you, Darren. So recently, a a briefing published by the Federal Fisheries and Oceans Department is urging Minister Tutu to help rebuild its scientific research capacity. Under the former government, several budget cuts were made to crucial research programs, such as the management of fisheries and ecosystems, management of ecosystems and science, and worst of all, the closure of the experimental lakes area, which was a world-class research site, um, researching things such as climate change, acid rain, and it is now operated by the NGO International Institute for Sustainable Development. However, the federal, uh, the federal Fisheries and Oceans Department is also currently suffering due to an aging Coast Guard workforce, as well as poor recruitment strategies. Another issue is infrastructure, and they're having challenges with storing and managing their data. So a way in order to move past these budget cuts, uh, the briefing says that um, It promotes the TPP as an economically viable solution to make it easier for the growing Canadian fisheries and seafood exports. So uh, annual exports have been growing for 25% in the last five years, and $5 billion have been made due to reduced traffic from trade agreements. As we all know, uh, the TTP is condemned due to its implication to the environment, yet the department, who is responsible for conserving marine life and helping Aboriginal communities, is actually telling uh, the minister to deepen their trade agreements with China and India. So what I would just like to say is I would re- like to raise the bigger question of how the, TP- how the TPP is being promoted by this governmental agency, which might not in the end actually get any benefit from it. 
Uh, Emma, do you have uh, something to say? To yeah, that? so I was actually quite surprised that at public service level that there would be such a strong endorsement on what is actually quite uh, a political level issue in my view. Um, I think this is also a very uh, interesting example, as you've highlighted, Sabina, of right-hand, left-hand problems, and it's actually all embodied in one department where you have the conservation element, but you also have what is uh, they perceive clearly as a mandate to support economic development in fisheries. So there's an the way they've positioned themselves, there's actually sort of an inherent conflict in terms of promoting both conservation and economic development. I don't think it has to be that way. And I think one of the problems is, and I'm and I'm not against, you know, um, promoting industries that are that hold important jobs for people in particular regions. I think we need to be mindful of who we're talking about and not just sideline the, the job aspect. But we also need need to be able to step back and zoom out and say, um, we need to look at the net impact of, of trade agreements on jobs in Canada. So you can't just look at one uh, regional industry and say, well, it's potentially good for this industry. I think that that, that merits some further analysis. Um, so then we provide a glowing endorsement. Um, without looking at the net cost, not only to other jobs and other sectors, but also to obviously the environment. So I think this is a very interesting uh, case study of where we see trade um, promoting a collision of interests domestically in Canada. And I think this also ties into what you were talking earlier about the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and how uh, they were all for going with the solar solar plan for India. But then when India wanted to increase their own uh, economic uh, empowerment, then America was saying, no, this isn't, this isn't possible. So I think that this, a similar thing could happen here if, if people want to increase uh, fishing job opportunities for Aboriginal people or um, other people that are in the areas that are most affected by this, an international trade agreement could actually have a potentially negative impact on this. Yeah, and one thing that's not being looked at, I think, critically enough is that conservation can create jobs both for Indigenous peoples and other people in, in, in other industries. And, you know, when we're looking at how the scientific work under this department was defunded, I mean, that's high-value jobs. That's the kind of intellectual capital Capital that Canada wants to be contributing, and it was it was leading world research. So, what about those types of jobs? Exactly, I completely agree. I mean, when the funding for all of the scientific research was uh, cut, a lot of the scientific community was like lost its jobs and was like muzzled pretty much, and we didn't really have a lot of research coming out of Canada for the last like, five years. Uh, I'll just I think this is a really interesting case. I'll just add one thing. Um, with the previous government, the conservatives, they would have said, like, we need trade. We're just going for it. And you kind of get what you what they're saying. Um, the liberal government, and I think we're going to see this in a lot of cases, as you're saying, like, they'll say one thing and, and sort of do another. Like, we need to do conservation. So we're going to do this really destructive trade agreement. Um, and so you, you never really know what to believe and what you're getting from this guy. And this is going to continually happen. Like this is the liberal way. Um, they speak well and do bad. Um, whereas the conservatives like say they're going to do bad stuff and then do it. Um, it's just a, a bit of a change. Yeah. I think it's also really interesting in the context of the Paris climate talks where the liberal government made promises, not legally binding promises. Obviously, our climate agreements are not as robust as our trade agreements and are not uh, don't involve like compensation for loss and damage and things. But, um, you know, we 
at first I was kind of almost feeling more optimistic. Okay, the Liberal government after Paris had made some promises like zero by 2050. We're part of the high ambition coalition. So now we actually have something to hold them accountable to. Whereas with the Conservatives, we didn't even really have that. But then, you know, a few months in and it's, you know, getting similar to what the, what we might have seen under the Conservatives with lip service. So this is just a fact check. Um, and I just want to just want to clarify to our listeners. So this position, just as Sabina had indicated, is coming from the public service. So I think I think it's really important. I agree with what's being said that we need to anticipate what the actual political position will be of the new government. But in defense of the incoming minister, he actually hasn't released his response to what his department is recommending. So I think that's this is sort of a key moment um, for Canadians for communities to really engage with this issue because he hasn't actually come out and said I am as a minister in in favor of the TPP because I think it's going to boost our fisheries industry. Actually, and what's also interesting is that Trudeau gave uh, Tutu, the minister of the Oceans and Fisheries um, Department, a mandate to review the major changes in the in the environmental laws of Canada, and many of those changes included the Fisheries Act. So I think if they start to review all of those changes and start to rebuild the scientific community around around that, then that will also increase a lot of jobs like you were talking about earlier. And I think and I hope that that happens. All right. Uh, I just wanted to jump in on one quick thing as well. And it's I mean, it's more or less a recap, but it's the thing that I find the funniest. And it's what it's referring to what we talked about earlier in the program or, or I mentioned earlier in the program, which was. The person, so say he goes ahead and say they make they they make this sort of official policy. This is a another perfect example of somebody who's stumping for something who has no idea what it means. They have no idea. He has no idea about the details. He has no idea about what the intricacies of his are, and he has no ideas of the fact that the apparently obvious fact that if you do have even the slight understanding of what it means is that this the deal will have a negative impact on climate, which will crush the fishing industry. It's not even about okay, well this is good for us, so we're going to support it. It's terrible for you too and you just don't know what you're talking about <laughs> and i and i hope it's that it, they don't know what they talk about and and not just actual corruption i i'm assuming they're ignorant in this case and the best part about it is that they're talking about a sustainable economy and when you think about sustainability you think long term you don't think about your next uh, roi and this is what they're trying to say here is that you know go on this trade agreement because we're going to um, save billions of dollars in uh, in taxes however that is very short-term thinking. And if you're talking about climate change and if you're talking about any kind of environmental strategy, now it's time to think long-term and it's not time to think about business and ROIs. It's- All right. So I just I, I just want to uh, sneak other, one other thing into the podcast here. We're, we're running short on time here. I want to wrap it up soon. So I'll just introduce the final topic as well. And again, all this will be posted. So if you want to read this for yourself, please go ahead. Uh, and I, I have a feeling Matt will want to jump in on this, but I'm surprising everybody in the room uh, just in case so there, that no one here knows what I'm about to say. This is a complete surprise to everyone. Uh, so there's a, uh, on the Intercept, there's an article that was posted by somebody uh, who's a right-wing American political consultant named Frank Luntz. Many people will have heard of him. Many others will have no idea who he is. Who he is is irrelevant other than the fact that he is a prominent right-wing, very well-connected political consultant. So not just a journalist, but somebody who actually is like up there in those meetings, you know, personal, you know, has had has lunch with people like Trump and Cruz and those types of folks. He's he's up there and had an 
fascinating, so fascinating poll that uh, uh, a bunch of poll results that he was analyzing. So here, here's a couple of quotes I want to read you, and then I'm going to tell you why I think this is important. So this is a quote from Frank Luntz. Americans 18 to 26 are extremely liberal, so liberal that the hostility of young Americans to the underpinnings of the American economy and the American government should, quote, frighten every business and political leader. There, one of the other uh, things, uh, the uh, percentages that was in there was 66% of the polls respondents said that corporate America, quote, embodies everything that it is wrong about America. <laughs> yes. 66%. So you could say, okay, well, those are just, you know, that's just some of the young people. And of course, there's that tired old trope about, well, young people are always liberal, and then you always get more right wing as you get older. Um, that does hold to some degree, but I would like to di uh, disagree with why. <laughs> when, you're, when you're young, you have the freedom to some degree to think about what would actually be, be best. And when you get older, you get part of that system and all of your interests, all of your personal security is tied up in the system that you would then be attracting. So the fact is not that you get older and wiser. The fact is that you get older and you get more entrenched in the system that you are now theoretically wanting to oppose. So what we see right now here is some really amazing stuff. And I just want to say one or two more things. And then I'm, I, I see Matt starting to weight shift like he has something he wants to say. So hopefully figure out something to jump in on here. Most liked and respected political figure by millennials right now is top four, 31% Bernie Sanders, 18% Barack Obama. Think about that. 31% Bernie Sanders, 18% Barack Obama. He's crushing a sitting president that is very popular. 11% Hillary Clinton, 9% Donald Trump. So you go three through three liberals before you even get to a conservative. Uh, and some, one of the other things that is uh, really interesting was – now, this is of anyone – if you could have dinner with any of the following people, whom would you choose? Anyone. Who would you choose? 18 to 21-year-olds. Number one, Bernie Sanders. Two, Barack Obama. Third, Bill Gates. Fourth, Ellen DeGeneres. Fifth, Jennifer Lawrence. Then Taylor Swift. Then Beyonce. Bernie Sanders is crushing Beyonce among 18 to 21-year-olds. Crushing. And then Oprah and then Hillary and then Donald Trump. It's, it, this is amazing. <laughs> 58% of respondents say they agreed with the statement, America isn't better or worse than most other countries other than that America, uh, with that American exception. So basically, young people don't believe, is nonsense American exceptionalism. These are all really, really good signs. Now, I could go on for quite some time, uh, but there's a whole bunch more slides, but I won't. The point of this, the point of this, before I let Matt jump in, the point of this is that you know, we're going to be doing a whole bunch of shows coming up now. I have a, a show plan that I've been planning for a while called the uh, the Limits of Democracy. I have a one that we're going to do after that called the Limits of Capitalism, and we're going to do a whole bunch of the Limits of things. This will be coming up in a few months. I'm going to try and plan it out really well and make sure that it's it's really well researched and whatnot when we do it. The point is, though, is that I get a lot of people who, when I start talking about sort of systemic change and big societal changes, they say, well, that's too pie in the sky. It's too far off. The sort of change you're talking about, I'm not even going to hear. I'm not even going to render uh, register an opinion on whether or not it's good because it can't happen. So it's useless to even talk about. And I say, Bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit because everybody who's young, this isn't just the normal thing of young people. There is a giant appetite for change. And that's why uh, Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz are leading. And that's why if you compare Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump directly, Bernie Sanders crushes him. And Hillary Clinton is currently losing in some national polls to Donald Trump. Fascist <laughs> Donald Trump 
is because people are just really pissed off at the establishment. And it, it is our loss if we don't take this upsurge in interest in, in how we run things and, and how the world works uh, to actually use it for something. Um, so there, I've, I'm about spent out, but Matt, I'll cede the floor to you for now. Okay, so I just want to pick up on something real quick that I think you, you, you've already identified, but I think is really interesting, is that, so this guy, I actually have no idea who, you're, who this person is, but the person that you've referred to, their opinion is sort of, not unusual amongst establishment white dudes. Uh, and that's always been the case and always will be, the, will be the case. Oh my God, the young people are coming and they have these crazy ideas and they're doing weird drugs and they have long hair and whatever. Um, and that's always been the case and that's always been fine. I just want to point out uh, David uh, has got a really cool beard, uh, <laughs> for the record. Um, and that's all fine and that's all well and good and that has been and always will be the way. What we see with with new security legislation is the... Uh, legislating of avenues whereby that shrieking hysteria can act, take real form. It used to be under our nation of laws that, yeah, sure, you'd have some establishment white dude freak out and say, oh, the hippies are coming, and then everyone would go, okay, yeah, well, we can't arrest them because democracy. What we're seeing now with the enactment of security legislation is that those shrieking hysterical views aren't kind of checked at the law, and they're allowed to sort of develop into real police action. So when people block pipelines and everyone loses their mind, you can actually go arrest uh, and detain those people without, without a warrant. When First Nations decide they're going to block railways because they violate treaties, you can actually go send in the RCMP and violate the territorial integrity. When uh, we say we need to fundamentally change the government uh, because it's a problem, you can actually send in a SWAT team. And we're seeing the removal of barriers from uh, between people who uh, want to arrest all of the hippies and all of the, quote, radicals, which we actually would fit that category in those people's eyes, um, and real uh, legal action against them, which should terrify all of us. I think I'm just going to add an upside to that because I feel I feel like I have to. Um, as, as, that that as was that me being be, an upside. <laughs> that was, that was me being excited, actually. Um, so... The one thing I would add is that if we look at this on a historical timeline, that these conversations, particularly in America, were not permitted to be had. Like if you look at the McCarthyism, for example, and you look at how quickly the label of communist or anti-American um, could, could be put upon somebody with the mildest of political views – in my lifetime, I have seen a huge shift that that young people are questioning economic and political models, um, that they are exploring things that diverge from the status quo. And the fact that Bernie Sanders can act, has gotten as far as he had would never have happened, I would argue, even 10 years ago. The fact that he is considered to be a legitimate actor um, – on the American political stage and that he can say the things freely that he has said without being completely socially and politically ostracized is huge progress. And I think we just sometimes, um, you know, and I, I, you know, I'm not trying to con contradict anything that's been then said on the show, but sometimes I think we forget about the historical timeline and the fact that we are seeing a shift. Now, there's a lot that we need to do to entrench that kind of progress, that kind of shift. And there's a lot of, of work around institutions that are still actively trying to enforce the status quo. But young people today are uh, are thinking so much more freely than they were 10 years ago. So I want to just end off on that note. 
Okay, and I just like to also say that I completely agree with what you're saying, Emma. And just recently, I read an article that said that um, "quote unquote" millennials, which is a word I despise, uh, have been have been um, making have been are have the highest percentage of entrepreneurs in history. And I think this is how business is changing as well. We think that, oh, businesses are bad. I don't necessarily think that. I think businesses are good if businesses do good. And their main mandate is to actually like increase uh, help and humanitarian relief and all of those, all of those things. However, with the increase of entrepreneurs and millennial entrepreneurs, I think that we're going to start to see an increase in business sustainability and hopefully move that forward. All right. So we'll have to leave it there, but I'll, we'll read out with the, the funniest of any of the slides. The least respected professions as voted by 18 to 21-year-olds, bankers, real estate agents, elected officials, and business leaders. We're coming for you. <laughs> have a good green week, folks. Have a, uh, we'll see you real soon.